Coffee around the world and thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter U.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is JewsforJudaism.ca. That's JewsforJudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Shalom, shalom, Jano, and shalom. it's great to be back with you. Wonderful to have you once again, my friend. Of course, we are continuing our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking questions. Who composed the psalm? What is it about? What was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How might it apply to us today? Uh, and when applicable, what would Christianity have, uh, have us believe about this particular psalm? And how does that deviate from the original intent? Uh, I don't know that we'll be going there this time round. We are, of course, up to Psalm chapter 13. And before we be, <laughs> before we began this recording, I said to you, you know, I think this is probably going to be our shortest one. And you went, uh. <laughs> <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. Well, let me read it because it, it, it is a very short psalm in any case. Uh, and it goes like this. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? Consider me, consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved." But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Michael. Isn't that beautiful? It's it's uh, compact and it's punchy. Hmm? <laughs> and and it's, as we'll see, there's probably a lot there. So, first of all, um, it's not a mystery who wrote this. This is uh, written by David. Mm-hmm. It's uh, one of David's... Um, Psalms, one of his songs, and um, the first thing that, that anyone that reads this psalm notices is the repetition, mm-hmm. um, right? The four-time repetition of the phrase, how long? How long? In, in Hebrew, ad ana, ad ana, four times, ad ana. So, I mean, that's just very blatant. It sticks out. Mm-hmm. And the question is, really, what's going on there? Um, and, the, and, and the next thing that uh, comes to mind uh, for me uh, it, it, one of the questions I want to ask you, how does it read in the Hebrew? The very first line, it doesn't seem to, it, it has a strange, I mean, it says, how long will you reject me forever? How long? Yeah, and you forever. know, well, it's, it's interesting because the phrase could have just said, um, and it would have read perfectly well, uh, how long will you forget me, God? Yeah. Because it's, that's what it sounds like he's asking. Hmm. And by by having this additional word of netzach forever, what he seems to be saying is that um, you know it, it seems that this is just dragging on forever. He seems to be, you know, almost uh, looking forward to an endless time of this. Mm. Um, you know, sort of a very uh, pessimistic kind of a uh, view, meaning that it sounds like someone who isn't just consumed with what they're going through at the moment, which we've seen that so many times in the last 12 Psalms that David is constantly, um, you know, writing about the, mm-hmm. the torments that he's experiencing in life. But we we have come to understand that, you know, in general, the Psalms are 
specifically focusing on some event, some circumstance in his life. And so you would expect him to be to be legitimately. Let's say, for example, um, if this is a psalm that is um, dealing with his being pursued by enemies and feeling, uh, you know, rejected and abandoned by God. So it's something that's happening right now. But you know, he's he's almost making it worse by by, by giving the impression that. You know, he feels this is just going to go on endlessly. How long is this going to last, ah. God? Now, you said he feels. So, this is uh, perhaps uh, the way that he writes this. It's an expression of his um, feeling of abandonment and despair. So, the, the forever there is to reflect the way that he feels rather than a, uh, a projection of time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's expressing tremendous frustration because it's one thing to be going through a difficult period in your life. But if you know it's going to end, you know, the classical example is the woman in labor. I mean, she's, you know, going through tremendous travail and, and pain, mm. but she knows it's going to come to an end. Mm. And many things in life, you know, a person's studying for finals, or they, you know, they, they uh, you know, they have some kind of a medical issue they're dealing with, and they know mm. they're going to come out of the hospital one day, mm. or you know, they get into a spat on Facebook. <laughs> they, they, they know that they know that one day they're going to block the person. I mean, most <laughs> most things. You know, we we suffer through it, but he, here, I mean, it's an expression of like, uh, you know, netzach means eternity, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, he, he's it's he's saying right off the bat here, this almost it's it's sort of coming out of him this painful groan of you know, God, is this going to go on forever? You know, so we don't normally is, th- well, we don't. As uh, therefore, one one would think, okay, so then this is this is very significant. This is a significant event in David's life. Then the next question we ask is, well, what event? What What is this? Can we, Do the sages pinpoint a particular event? Not really. I mean, I mean, almost all the psalms that we've been reading are generally tied to his, um, you know, difficulties with his father-in-law, with King Saul. Mm. And then there are other, you know, we, there's no lack of other episodes where he's got difficulties from various quarters. But no one really, I haven't seen anyone really pinpointing uh, the source of this frustration. Okay. And, you know, the truth is that what most of the sages um, maintain is that uh, even though David expresses this psalm, the, the, this, uh, you know, this, this meditation here of suffering in the first person as if he's going through it, just about all of the sages and all the commentaries say it's really – this is uh, he, he. It's it's Israel personified. That this is really going beyond David's personal life, and it's speaking about Israel, the, the people of Israel in general, and their uh, suffering over the, the tremendous suffering over the long course of their history. And so there, the word eternal comes really sharply into focus because. It certainly does feel like that, you know, as being part of the Jewish people. We have a long history, mm. you know, it goes back over 3,000 years and it hasn't ended. You know, it's it's 3,000 years later and look what's going on. Mm. You know, people people are being blown up in the, in the streets of Israel and, you know, we, we have, you know, every few months at the United Nations, it's the whole world voting against us and mm. we're being boycotted and Ir- Iran is threatening to wipe us out with nuclear bombs and, mm. 
you know, it, 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 it's been 3,000 years, basically, of persecution, of suffering, of, of hatred, of feeling isolated, feeling abandoned. And, you know, and we'll see in a minute why they say this. I'll get to it in a minute. But that's generally what happens. They sort of, they pivot away from David's personal experience. And they say that really he's speaking here you could even say prophetically, um, but he's speaking here of the experience of Israel mm-hmm. in their long, long history um, and exile. And um, the Midrash here, the, the rabbinic Midrash, which goes back you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, um, p- plays off of these four words where Israel, where Israel here, I mean, it's David saying, you know, Ad Anna, how long? Um, you know, it can also be understood, I should point out, it doesn't only have to mean how long, it could mean to what end. I mean, what is the purpose really? of this? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, it's interesting that what's going on here, let's say we swing it back to David for a minute, that it's not necessarily David asking this directly to God. It sounds like that. It sounds like God is being a, a, a addressed directly and David's complaining to him and saying, what's going on here? You know how long is how long is my suffering going to last? Mm. How long how long mm. do I have to put up with this? But you know another way of looking at this is you know to what end shall this be going on? You know what's the purpose of this suffering? And really, what you know I think it's very possible to read it this way is that it's really an inner dialogue that David is having with himself, meaning that he's as a believer he's sort of wondering to himself. I'm sure that. You know, as someone who really has an intimate relationship with God, he's always wondering. He's not necessarily throwing this at God. He's wondering inside, why am I going through this? Why am I experiencing this? What is the purpose of this? Um, And we see in verse 3 where he speaks about, you know, I'm putting thoughts into my own soul. I'm I'm contemplating this. How long do I have to, right? How long do I have to keep on turning these thoughts in my own soul how long do i have to seek counsel within myself how it's it's hard to translate those words in verse 3 but you know he's almost alluding to the fact there that he, this is an inner struggle he's going through with he's he's just he's pondering and, and he's bothered it's interesting because uh, putting it that way it reminds me uh, if you were perhaps to summarize uh, the first 5 verses there is a verse I think that we've already addressed, and I can't remember which chapter. Where David says, "Will my soul praise you from? Will, will I? Will I praise you from the grave? What is the purpose if I die?" Exactly, exactly. And I think that it, it, you could obviously say that both things are going on here. That he's he's really posing this to God, and yet I'm sure that these are thoughts that he uh, often wondered about as a sensitive person, as a, as a, as a religious, as a spiritual person, Mm. these must have been thoughts that, uh, consumed him. And, you know, also the, the impulse of the spiritual person is to often wonder why, why am I going through this? Because maybe I deserve it. And the person will often try to seek the cause of his suffering in the hopes of maybe, uh, addressing those causes, meaning that if the suffering is a result of some transgression or mm. some falling short, 
the the religious impulse is not to blame others. The, the you know that was the the great fault of Saul, his father-in-law, was to blame others, was mm. to deflect responsibility. Mm. And we know that David, right, immediately accepts responsibility. Mm. He doesn't you know he doesn't wait for three seconds before he totally accepts. Right when Nathan. The, the prophet confronts him, right, and, and says, you're the man, mm. uh, you know, David immediately repents and he expresses he says, remorse. Oh, and he does I've it. sinned, yeah. Yeah. A- another example just comes to mind, uh, uh, Michael, of uh, the story of Shimei, when Shimei is attacking David and David uh, doesn't give the order to have him killed. He says, who knows, maybe this is warranted, maybe, maybe I deserve this, just let him exactly. go. Exactly, exactly. So, I think that when you read these verses in the beginning here, um, you know, it sounds like a complaint against God. It sounds like, uh, you know, expressing frustration to God, which on some level it is. On the other hand, I think that he's also churning inside and wondering, you know, why am I going through this and, and to what end is it? What's the purpose of all this suffering? Mm. Um, it's interesting, by the way, the, in the very second line, he speaks about how long will you hide or conceal your face from me? Mm-hmm. Just an interesting point about the Hebrew words here. Um, this is referred to in Hebrew as Hester Panim. Um, Hester means hidden or or concealing, and Panim is the face. And really, what the face does is the face of everyone reveals what's going on inside. You know, they say, for example, in Hebrew, that panim, the face, reflects the panim, the, the inside. The mm-hmm. word panim means inside. And so, if you want to see what's going on, you know, with, with someone, you look at their, you don't look at their elbow, you don't look at their stomach, you no. look at their face. As they say, right? the eyes are the window to the soul, right? Exactly, the face, right? Not just the eyes, but the whole the mm-hmm. mouth and the. So the facial expression it reveals what's going on inside mm-hmm. and it's it's really the way god would be revealing himself I mean is speaking anthropomorphically mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. when it speaks about god concealing his face what it's really saying is you know david is saying god i don't know what's going on with you anymore because your 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 face is being concealed from mm. me it just could have said in hebrew you're concealing yourself mm. but the use of the word face is significant because the face is specifically that part of the body that reveals what's going on inside. Mm. And so, he says here, and I'll get back to the Midrash I I just spoke about a few minutes ago, these four expressions here of how long will you forget me, how long will you hide your face, how long will I put ideas into my soul, and how long will my enemy triumph over me. So, the Midrash has something uh, very, very poignant here. And the Midrash says that what's really going on here is that um, God is basically, they, they, they sort of, they give you the, the, the context of this psalm and they give you the, the background and they say that God says to the people of Israel, look, you're the ones that threw me out. You exiled me. Mm. Um, God basically accuses Israel of uh, pushing him away. Mm. And the Midrash cites four times where God uses the expression ad ana, how long. Right? God is the first one to say it. And here are the four expressions. God says in Numbers 14, verse 11, how long will they provoke me? This is mm. at the incident of the spies when 
you know, here God had sent ten plagues to redeem them from Egypt, and he split the sea for them, and he spoke to them at Mount Sinai, and he's been feeding them with manna from heaven and providing them with water from mm. the rock, and he's leading them with a pillar of fire and a cloud, and you know, they, they're, they're being surrounded by miracles, daily miracles, and then they come to the border of Israel, which is where they're supposed to be going, and they send spies to check out the land, and the spies come back and they say, it's a beautiful place, it's gorgeous, but the people are really strong there. And the whole nation, they begin crying, and they, they, they give up, and you know, God gets exhausted with them at this point. I mean, God's put mm. up with a lot already. They're complaining throughout the, the journey in the desert, we don't like the food, and there's the water that mm. tastes bitter, and there's no water, and the, they were complaining, 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 complaining. But this finally, it's almost, it, it, it's the last straw, because God is basically saying, you know, don't you get it? I mean, I've taken you so far. Don't you think I can bring you into the land? Is it so hard for me? Mm. So, in Numbers 14.11, God says, how long will they provoke me? This is after the spies come back with the negative report. And then in the same verse, he says, how long will they not have faith in me? And then later in the chapter, in, in chapter 14, verse 27 of Numbers, how long for this evil assembly that provokes complaints against me? So, those, those are three times where God says, Ad Anna, how long? And hmm. then the fourth example they have is um, not Ad Anna, but it's a similar expression, Ad Matai, Numbers 14, 27, mm -hmm. that God says, Ad Matai, how long for this evil assembly? Which is a, it's a synonymous with Ad Anna. But the fourth example is in Exodus 16, 28, where God is sending the manna down from mm -hmm. heaven and tells them that they're not to collect anything on the Sabbath, that on the sixth day they'll get a double portion, mm. but not to go out on the Sabbath. And we know that some of the people go out on the Sabbath, yeah. right? And God says in chapter 16, verse 28 of Exodus, how long will you refuse to observe my commandments? Mm. So, he gets frustrated four times. And so, what the Midrash says is, that um, because of these four times that the Jews provoked God, and God had to say, how long? How, how long will you mm. provoke me? How long will you disobey me? How long will you refuse to believe in me? Right? When, when God has to say this because they've exiled God. They've thrown God out, and they've lost contact with God. So, God says in the Midrash, because of this, I'm going to have to exile you four times. And we know from the book of Daniel uh, in chapters 2 and 7, uh, our reference to the, these four kingdoms, these four empires. Um, you know, in chapter 2, the king has a vision that he asks Daniel to interpret. And you have a similar vision in the seventh chapter of Daniel. And the, the it's not really spelt out exactly in Daniel who these refer to, these kingdoms. But the sages say that these refer to the four exiles of Babylon, of Persia, of Greece, and of Edom, uh, which is called Rome or the present exile that we're in now. Mm -hmm. And so, the Midrash says that because you threw me out, you exiled me, God says, and you provoked me 
to in exasperation have to exclaim how long will you how long will you how long will you how long will you i'm going to send you into these four exiles which again covers the whole scope of jewish history and because you're going to be in these four exiles you will be prompted right you as the people will be prompted to to for you to scream out ad ana right that you will as in, as in, as in this psalm this is the psalm where the people now respond to their long exile by saying how long will you forget us how long will you hide your face how long will my enemy triumph over me so um, you have the psalm basically expressing according to this view not just the life of david but the history of the jewish people mm. where their long history of exile really is a response to their they turning away from god their exile really prompts them to, as we see in this psalm, cry out to God or cry out to themselves, how long is this exile going to go on? Isn't it long enough already? How long do we have to put up with this suffering? How long will we be you know, tormented by our enemies? And then what the Midrash says to conclude, and we'll jump to the last verse just for a minute, but then we'll get back to it later. But the Midrash says that the last verse in the psalm actually expresses four languages of salvation that they first say um, that I uh, trust in your loving kindness and then they say that my heart rejoices in your salvation and then it says Ashira I will sing to the Lord and then finally because he has dealt uh, bountifully with me. Um, so at the end, there are four expressions, if you will, of salvation. Um, so that's how the Midrash sees this psalm, that it's basically really a historical uh, presentation of um, the sinning of the Jewish people, their rejection of God's presence in their midst, God uh, in exasperation sending them into their long exile, their response to the suffering by calling out to God, we'll see praying to God ultimately, because this is a prayer, this is a psalm, and then finally experiencing God's salvation. Mm. Uh, so that, that's at least one way in which um, this psalm is um, approached, meaning that it's both approached as dealing with the life of David, and it certainly could be read that way, mm -hmm. but also as, as dealing with the more general um, expression of the, the history of the nation of Israel and their experience of exile. Just coming back to uh, what you were just saying regarding the final verses, it is difficult to reconcile the way it opens with the way it ends, though, don't you think? Because uh, at least in this translation, how long, O Lord, will you, will, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long shall I take counsel? So on and so forth. But And then at the end, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has, because he has dealt bountifully with me. How, how can he say, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, when he also begins by saying, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's actually the beautiful mystery of this psalm. Um, and it's, it's one that all the commentaries, you know, speak about. Um, I mean, I think there are a number, way, number of ways of addressing that. And, you know, we can skip to that now before we get there, actually. Um, 
I think there there are a few things that I would that I would share, um, and this applies both to the experience of David as an individual and to the history of um, of the, of the nation. Mm-hmm. That the truth is that both David and the, the nation have in the past experienced God's salvations. For example, you know, our national history, the history of the people of Israel, begins with God redeeming them. Mm-hmm. And so, it's that awareness and that uh, consciousness of God's past salvations that allows them to have faith in future salvations. Um, it's one of the reasons, by the way, why um, the the um, rabbinic tradition is that the Messiah will come Passover time. Mm-hmm. And they say that just as we were redeemed in the past in the month of Nisan, Passover time, so too will the future redemption be in Passover time. And what's interesting is that if, if we think about how the Passover Seder is set up, we, you know, the, the, the evening where we uh, commemorate the exodus from Egypt – uh, the whole Passover Seder experience revolves around a meal, and it revolves around uh, reciting chapters of praise to God, what we call the Hallel, the, um, the Psalms of praise to God. Mm-hmm. And um, these chapters of praise, the Hallel, uh, praising God, is split up into two. It, it, half of it appears before the meal, and half happens after the meal. And all the commentaries point out is that the Seder has two parts to it. The first half of the Passover evening commemorates the redemption from Egypt. Mm-hmm. But the, the part of the Passover Seder that happens after the meal is looking forward to the future redemption. And that's, that's a, a very clear difference in the themes between the beginning of the Passover Seder in the evening and the end of the Passover Seder. So, that's also happening in this psalm. And if you look at the actual syntax of the last verse, um, it, it, it sort of goes back and forth between past and future tense. For example, the last phrase says, I will sing to the Lord, future, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's one way of looking at this transition, meaning that even though the, David and the people are experiencing tremendous uh, suffering and travail and frustration, but they look back to the fact that we have experienced salvation in the past, and that's why we can have faith that we will be redeemed in the future. But I, I think a more, to me, beautiful way of looking at this, and your question is a very good one, because it is striking that you know the psalm begins so negatively and so… Uh, in such a depressing manner, mm. and then it sort of like it flips, like it's a very mm. sort of it, it it very quickly flips. It's, it's and you almost wonder, by like, the time you finish with the chapter, you're like, well, what was all that about? <laughs> and you're wondering, like, how, how did that happen? How did yeah. he how, how did he get pulled out of his doldrums so quickly? Yeah. You know, within the course of three or four verses, it's like, woe is me, woe like, is me, as he's as he's <laughs> scratching out the lottery ticket, and then all of a sudden he gets the numbers, and he's like, ah, oh, but it's all good. <laughs> Don't worry about well, it. Yeah, that that. But it's interesting because here he's scratching lottery tickets and it's not coming out, uh-huh. right? He, it's another one he throws in the garbage and then he, he gets up and sings and dances. So um, I think that the most beautiful way of looking at this transition is that the structure of the psalm is one where it begins with his complaints, basically. It begins with the complaints of either David and or the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. And then it, it goes into a prayer, meaning that after the complaining, 
in the first verses, um, it, it transitions in verse 4. He, 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 he says, look and answer me, O Lord my God. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not just complaining. It's answer me. Show yourself. Mm-hmm. Meaning that it begins by talking about God not being there, hiding. And now he's saying, look at me. Right? Um, answer me by, by looking at me. Let me feel you're with me. And so he, he asks God to lighten my eyes, meaning that my eyes were, were dimmed because I wasn't seeing anything, meaning that the, the language here is very evocative because the beginning of the psalm, you know, it's speaking about not seeing because God is in hiding. Mm. And here he's asking to be able to, to see. I want to see you, God. Uh, give me a peek. Let me see something. Um, and he goes on to continue the prayer because if you don't, right, my enemies are going to rejoice over me. And then after the prayer, all of a sudden, in the last verse, David and the, the, the people saying this psalm, you know, scream uh, with this incredible trust they have in God's loving kindness. Not just they trust in God's loving kindness, but that we will rejoice in God's salvation. And so, um, I think that, you know, the, the most poignant way of looking at this is that what flips and what, what changes is that the experience of prayer itself is what turns their despair into hope. Uh, so, it, so, it, be- is a, it, it then is a, a reflection of hope. Now, um, I, I ask because… But, it, but, it, but you yeah. see, in the psalm, right, the, 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 what is being expressed is despair. Mm-hmm. What's being expressed is, is frustration. And then how does that flip into not just hope but rejoicing and, and singing? It's because right after the frustration came a prayer. And what transforms the person, meaning the person that feels despair and feels tormented and feels abandoned, it's by turning to God in prayer and expressing those thoughts, that expression of prayer itself, that turning to God in prayer Mm. is what lifts us up. And so, we see, for example, in Psalm 34, 19, we're, we're told that God is close to the brokenhearted, meaning that that when we express our brokenness and we express our despair and we express our um, our, our sense of, of alienation, mm-hmm. that itself brings God close. That by us expressing our broken hearts, that itself is what brings God close. Um, in Psalm 147 verse 3, we're told that God heals the brokenhearted. Mm-hmm. So, once we express our broken heart and we pray to God, we become healed through the prayer. There's a very beautiful passage in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, where God says, I'm with the despondent and the lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the despondent. So, I think what what really transitions here, what really is the catalyst for this radical transformation is that it's the prayer. It's the fact that the the, the, the the person or the people here turn to God in prayer, and that turns their despair into hope. Considering the uh, confusion in uh, what, what seems to be confusion in the tense from the uh, opening verses to the last, I have a note uh, in my um, Jewish study Bible, and it says, uh, uh, in, in regards to the tenses uh, being confusing, uh, it says, and a more literal rendering would be, in regards to the final verses, 
But I trust in your faithfulness. May my heart exult in your deliverance. May I sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. Do you think that's fair? Look, it's a possible rendering of of the Hebrew, but I think that a more literal reading, um, you know, the tenses are pretty clearly in the past and in the future. Mm. Um, Ashira, um, the very last phrase, Ashira Ladonoi, I will sing to the Lord. Kigomal alai, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Mm. Um, even the first phrase, Vani um, and I uh, will trust in your loving kindness. Yagel libi, my heart will rejoice in your mm. salvation. Um, so again, the the JPS there is a possible way of, of rendering the Hebrew. Um, but I think that you know it's equally fair. If I would say even more literal, more more faithful to the language here, mm-hmm. um, to to really see that there's both a past and a and a future expressed mm. in the same verse. Um, okay. Now, there's something interesting that goes on in this psalm that um, contrasts it with Psalm 10, with chapter 10. Oh, okay, and. What's really because you'll see if you take chapter ten, um, I think it's verse. Um, what verse is it? Verse eleven. So chapter ten, verse eleven, you have a very similar phrase um, that's used in this psalm as well. It's the it's the combination of God not remembering mm-hmm. or God forgetting and God. Um, Oh, now this What's, is this is the evil uh, person. This is the wicked yes. man who says who says in his heart, "God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see." Exactly right. And those two expressions of that God um, hides his face and God. Um, in fact, all three of them surely. God God has forgotten. Forgets uh, that he hides his face and that he will never see. I, I think I see where you're going because he says. Uh, you will forget me. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? And um, and and he pleads with God to uh, consider and hear me. Okay. So you know, it's interesting that these terms are used by the wicked person in Psalm 10, but they're used by David here in Psalm 13. Mm. And really, what you see is two different ways of understanding. Uh, Hester Panim, the hiding of God's face, because it's because it's a comforting thought to the wicked. The, the wicked comfort <laughs> the, themselves <laughs> exactly. with going, ah, God is God. Yeah, he hides his face. Don't worry about it. Whereas here, David is uh, uh, in tor- almost in torment over it. But the, but the, the real difference is that for the wicked person, the, the wicked person thinks that God hiding his face means that God is not involved. Mm. That God has. That God basically has uh, checked out. That God is no longer and that justice present won't be served upon them. Exactly, meaning that since God is out of the picture, I can do whatever I want. And David understands that even though God is hiding His face, He still sees us. He's mm. still aware. And and how do we know that? Because David speaks to him. So you know, the the righteous person understands that even in a situation where there is the hiding of God's face, it doesn't mean that God isn't there. Hmm. Um, but God is aware, and God sees what's going on. And what happens here is that David really uh, appeals to God and says, look, um, you know, 
I understand, in effect, David says, that you know, when you hide your face from us, you have a reason for doing it. Um, you know, you either want to correct us or you want us to, uh, you know, to turn inward and, and be introspective about our relationship. I mean, God, you know, you certainly have your reasons for hiding your face. Um, but what, what David is saying here, apparently, is that, you know, for whatever reasons you have, it, it may cause more harm than good, mm. meaning that uh, at the end of the day, the wicked people will take your hiding of the face and they're going to uh, cause really uh, a diminishment of your name. Mm. And it's interesting because it's very similar to the arguments that Moses uses several times with God. Um, you know, God you know, several times gets fed up with the Jewish people, for example, after the golden calf, mm -hmm. and God, you know, wants to essentially do Lock away with the people. Mm -hmm. And Moses says in Exodus 32.12, you know, what will Egypt say if you destroy Israel? Meaning that, God, you're going to look impotent. You're going to look like, you know, you just don't have any power. Mm -hmm. You'll look powerless. Meaning that, you know, you sure have your reasons for for being upset, God. I know that you're upset, but you know you're going to lose in the end. He he sort of throws this to God and says you're going to look bad. And then after the uh, incident of the spies, when God also wants to wipe them out, Moses says in Numbers fourteen fifteen, what are the nations going to say that mm. you couldn't bring them into the land? So the same argument is really being made here that God, if you keep on ignoring us and turning your back from us and and forgetting us and you know abandoning us to you know our fate among the the people that are trying to hurt us you're going to look bad because these evil evil people are going to rejoice the the enemies are going to say i prevailed against him and mm. it's interesting that you know we know that when it says that i have prevailed against him it's not just i prevailed against david I, when I prevail against David, I prevail against David's God. Mm. And so, you know, the enemy is really saying two things here. I've beaten David and I've beaten David's God as well. Mm. Um, because we know that, you know, the people of Israel are God's representatives. Where so Isaiah chapter 43 says we're God's witnesses in this world. Um, and so… Um, Doesn't that remind you, know, you of the boasts of uh, Goliath? Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Um, I had one more question to ask about this psalm, which you know is troubling, by the way. Yeah. Um, if we look at this psalm as, you know, let's say the expressions of King David, mm. um, you know, he's speaking as someone that has a tremendous amount of faith in God. He's speaking of as someone who clearly uh, recognizes. Um, his relationship with God, mm -hmm. and he recognizes that, uh, you know, it's interesting that he, he basically says to God in the beginning of this chapter, you know, what I want, God, is your attention. Mm -hmm. I, I want you to pay attention to me. Yep. I'd rather that you punish me than just ignore me. I, I want to have your involvement in my life. And so, what's interesting is that here, you see the the uh, the speech, the, the the expressions of a person who's clearly a righteous person, 
And so, if he really is that righteous and he's able to express his total confidence and trust in God, even when he's suffering, Mm -hmm. so why is a righteous person like this suffering so much? Meaning that, you know, who are the people that should be getting clobbered like he's describing in the beginning of this psalm? Um, so, it is a bit of a conundrum. You know, if David is recognizing this and he's expressing such total faith in God, he's clearly not someone who's evil and wicked. And so, why is God doing all this to him? Um, you know, this goes back to the previous weeks where we discussed the whole question of why the righteous suffer in mm. this world. Um, and again, one of the themes, in I believe it's a theme that, that uh, emerges from the Tanakh, is this theme of noblesse oblige, that people who are on a higher spiritual level, more is expected uh, of them. Required more, yeah, that's right, yeah. And, yeah. and that, that seems to bear out every time, and, and certainly um, uh, Moses uh, is, a, is a, uh, a strong example of that, not being able and, to go think, into the land. Exactly, and I think David as well. Mm. I mean, David is such a person that has, you know, the heart of someone who is totally with God, And yet he's someone that suffers immensely in his life. Mm. And, uh, you know, so although you could say that, you know, there were some serious mistakes that David did make in his life. And he himself feels that a lot of his suffering was punishment for his, you know, serious indiscretions. Um, So it's a question that really, I think, does emerge from a lot of these psalms Mm. where, you know, if David is the speaker and David is the writer... Um, and he, he is a righteous person. You know, he, again, he's <laughs> no one else wrote the book of Psalms. I mean, you know, here's someone that was able to compose the Psalms. He's not a wicked person. He's not a, uh, you know, spiritually inferior person. He's on a very high level. Mm. And so we have to, you know, think about why he does experience so much suffering and travail. That opens so much that we, <laughs> we could talk about that, obviously, for a long, long time. Uh, and we don't have time to do that. And it does remind me, as I mentioned before, of uh, the reason why Moses wasn't allowed to go into the land for what we would generally see as maybe a, an almost trivial uh, reason, something that he did really doesn't seem like it was that bad. But uh, because of the position that he was in, because of what he was entrusted with, he was held to a much higher account. Oi. Yes. Are we done with uh, Chapter 13? Well, for tonight. <laughs> for tonight, we're done with chapter 13. When we, when, we, when we go finish the whole book of Psalms and we come back for the second round, we'll, yeah. we'll go deeper. <laughs> That's what we'll do. <laughs> but that, of course, brings us uh, to 14, which we have alluded to quite a number of times so far in these uh, first 13 chapters. We're finally going to get there. And uh, when it comes to, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, Um, What would Christianity have us believe about each psalm and how does it deviate from the original intent? All the fireworks go off when we get to Psalm chapter 14. I'm looking forward to doing that with you very soon, my friend. Rabbi Michael Skobeck of JewsForJudaism.ca is the website. JewsForJudaism.ca, that's Jews for Judaism in Canada. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. You've been listening to Truth To You with me, John Evandor. Join me on the coming Truth To You Israel tour. Details at our website, truthtoyou.org. That's truth, number two, letter U.org. Thank you for your company, and I hope you'll join us again. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.